So how many of you have ever done something really stupid that you didn't really know how to get out of? Okay. I do a lot of stupid things. Uh, I say stupid things, and then I'm like, how do I get out of this? Uh, so when I was in second grade, I did a stupid thing. Uh, so a really cool trend started. If you know like the, like the old school pencils, not mechanical pencils, uh, but the old school ones, how they have like the metal at the end of the pencil, and then there's the eraser. So my friends were all taking the metal off of the pencils and making earrings out of them. And we'd put them in our ears, like little loops. And I was waiting really patiently to get one. It took me like three days to get one because I didn't know how to make it. My friend was making them, you know, starting like a little side business. Uh, I finally got one. I put it in, uh, but I put it in right before gym class. So I'm running around in circles and it's falling off. So I'm like holding it like this. And I'm like, okay, I got to set this down somewhere. I don't have pockets. So uh, the great idea I got was to stick it in the fire alarm. So you're like, you know when, like the little pull-down thing, like how there's like a little space, like right behind it? I just kind of dropped it in there, kept running, and, uh, and I forgot about it. And then when I got home, I was like, oh, darn it. Like I waited so long for that earring, and it's sitting there in the fire alarm thing. So I said, okay, I'm going to have mom take me to school early the next day and make sure I grab that right at the beginning of school so I can wear it. So I'm going in. I come in early. Like I never came in early, but uh, this time I'm at school, like 30 minutes early, I go and I, you know, reach my little paws in there trying to grab the little, you know, the little earring, and then boom, the fire alarm goes down. And I'm like, it's going, eh, eh. I'm like, oh my gosh. And I just like ran and hid. Uh, but like, I've always had like a really strong conscience. So like, if I even do like something kind of minor, I feel really convicted about it. I feel really guilty. So uh, the principal comes over the intercom about 20 minutes later and is like, you know, we're going to catch the perpetrator. Like, whoever it is, we're going to catch you and you're going to get suspended. I'm sitting there, I'm like, my heart's beating. I'm like, should I tell him? Should I not? And I waited about two hours and I finally said, okay, I got to tell him. So I went to the principal's office and I told him. I was actually too embarrassed about the, about, the, um, or about the earring. So I said that I tripped and grabbed the fire alarm. Uh, which was a complete lie, and I don't think he believed that. But, but anyways, I shared, and I cried, and I said, I'm really sorry I didn't mean to pull the fire alarm. And he gave me a hug and said he loved me, or not loved me. He said, you know, you're a good kid. <laughs> I'm thinking in the terms of when I, uh, you confess your sins to a pastor. He wasn't a pastor. He's a principal. But anyways, he hugged me and said, it's okay, bud. And he sent me back to class. I didn't get suspended. But uh, yeah, so it ended up turning out pretty well. But I think it's safe to say that all of us in this room have had a struggle like this. Like we screw up really badly, uh, we do something we shouldn't have, and then there's this, this, uh, this wrestling that happens where we're trying to decide, should I tell someone or should I try to keep it in? Should I go and confess what I've done or should I just try to make things better on my own? And if we don't tell, any, or tell anyone about what we did, it's, it kind of tears us up inside, like we feel like we're not an honest person. But then if we tell someone, we risk being rejected for what we've done. So we kind of wrestle back and forth. Do I want to have this tear me up inside or do I want to risk being rejected? And every human being has experienced this feeling, this feeling of doing something that they shouldn't have done. And the Bible refers to this as sin. I'm sure you've heard the phrase sin before. And defined, sin just means, or technically it means missing the mark. So it just means kind of missing God's intention for our lives. And all of us have done something we regret and we've all fallen into sin. Or so maybe you're here tonight and you're in a similar situation to what I was in as a second grader. There's something going on in your life that nobody knows about. There's some sin you're committing that nobody knows about. It's a secret sin. You've kept it hidden from other people. And tonight, I think God wants to set us free. If you're struggling with something, or maybe you 
are struggling with the sin and people know about it, but you haven't found freedom yet. Maybe you have an addiction or maybe uh, you struggle with anger and you can't seem to get it under control. Maybe you struggle with compulsive lying. Like that's way more common than you might realize. People make up stories all the time. Maybe that's one of you. Maybe you struggle with lying and you just can't seem to get out of it. And Satan wants to tell you that there's no way that you're ever going to get free from this sin. Satan wants to trap you and lie to you and tell you that there's no way you're going to get out, and then he wants to tell you that God will never love you because of this sin. Some of you have bought into that lie tonight. You walked in believing that if, if God found out about your sin or if people found out about your sin, then they wouldn't love you. But Jesus wants to tell us a different story tonight. Jesus wants to speak truth to your heart and tell you that, yes, uh, your sin is serious. It's grievous. Like, like Jesus does not minimize sin. It is serious. But at the same time that your sin is so grievous and serious, God loves you more than you could ever dream despite anything you could ever do. And Jesus wants you to experience that transformative love tonight and for that to compel you to get free of that sin. Because the only thing that's going to get you free of those dehabilitating sins tonight is God's love. His grace is what compels us to get free from our sin. So with that said, tonight we're going to continue our series called Kings and Queens. And tonight we're going to talk about how we can overcome our sins, how we can be the son and daughter that God has called us to be, the son or daughter that God has called us to be. Because God doesn't only want you to be his son or daughter positionally, like, hey, like, yes, I am a son or daughter of God, but he also wants you to live like his son or daughter. He wants you to live like him. So tonight we're going to talk about how we do that. Last week we talked about how you become a son or daughter. We talked about how Jesus gives an or gives an invitation to all of us to become his sons and daughters. And all we have to do to positionally become his sons or daughters is to come to him and throw our whole life in him and say, Jesus, I trust you with my salvation. And if you do that, it says in John 1, 12, that you will be given the right to become a child of God. But tonight what I want to do is take it a step further and say, okay, now you're a child of God, or maybe you're not a child of God yet, but hopefully you'll become one. And then once you become a child of God, you're not only going to be that way in God's eyes, but you're also going to live holy. You're going to live a pure life and live the life that God has called you to live. And that's not because you're trying to please God. That's not because you're trying to perform some religious rituals. But it's because if you live life uh, the way that God intended for you to live it, then you're going to have abundant life. Like God gave us rules and laws and, and, and different, uh, or different guidelines for life because he knows if we live life the way that he designed it, then we're going to flourish and have joy. So tonight, I'm praying that you'll be able to step into that. So tonight's sermon is called A Kingdom Life. A kingdom life. Last week was a kingdom invitation, and now tonight is a kingdom life. I want you, God wants you to live the life that he destined for you to live, to walk in holiness, to walk in love and purity, and to be the son or daughter that he's called you to be. And to set up our talk tonight, we're going to look at John chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one after service. They're really nice. They're fancy Bibles. So I encourage you. It's not like one of those paper Bibles that say Holy Bible on the front. It looks like you got it from a garage sale. These things are leather, black. They're sweet, okay? So anyways, I'm trying to sell the Bibles, and they're free. But all right, so John 8, it's the first story in John 8. We're actually going to start in the last verse of chapter 7. But it's a very popular story. It's the story of how Jesus interacts with a woman who's called in adultery. So in other words, if you don't know what adultery is, this woman had sex with someone who's not her husband. Okay, that's the definition of adultery. Okay, so this woman commits the most grievous sin, and then Jesus interacts with her. So we're going to look at that to see how we can find freedom from our sin tonight. Okay, it says this. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees, which were just the religious leaders of the day, brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, 
and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. In other words, this woman is really messed up, is what they're saying. And now, in the law of Moses, in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote, and wrote with his finger on the ground, and we have no idea what he wrote. Like, you should do a Google search on it. It's fun. Could be a number of different things. We don't know. I'm not going to get into it tonight, but it's interesting. All right, verse 9. But then when they heard it, they went away one by one. Actually, verse 7. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But then when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, because old people know that we've sinned, right? Older people know that they've sinned. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So this is like the climax of the story. This is a huge moment. It's just him and the woman, or just him and the woman. What's he going to say to her? This is what he said. He said, women, where are they? I said, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, nobody, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on, sin no more. This is scandalous. This story should not just like, uh, we shouldn't just read this and be like, oh, okay, that's a cute story that I've heard over and over again. But this story is scandalous. The God of the universe, Jesus, is perfect. He's holy. He's never sinned once. And this woman had committed the most grievous sin in her culture. And he says to her, although the penalty for the sin is technically death, he says to her, neither do I condemn you. Even though she disobeyed God's law and her penalty was death, he looks at her with love in his eyes and his heart and says that she does not have to pay for her sins. If God wrote the law, then how is this possible? How does Jesus, or how does Jesus let her off the hook? That's what we're going to look at tonight. But to notice, after forgiving her, he doesn't just say, okay, you're forgiven, now keep having sex with people who aren't your husband. That's not how Jesus works. Jesus forgives her, and then he says, now go and sin no more. He says, this grace should change you. Jesus expects that his grace uh, would be transformative in our lives, that his love would lead us to live a different lifestyle. So that leads me to my main idea tonight, if you're taking notes, and it's this. God empowers us to live like Jesus by showing us extravagant grace. The way to live like Christ is to realize how God looks at you. That's the truth tonight. All right, I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump into it. God, we thank you for tonight. I thank you for every single student who came tonight, every single student who swam here in the rain, and they just braved it, Lord, because they wanted to be with you. God, I thank you for that tonight. And God, I pray that they would be rewarded for coming. And tonight, that you would speak, that your voice would reign in this place, that not my voice, but your voice, and that you would speak to each and every heart in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this passage shows us that there's a connection between experiencing the radical love of God and going and sinning no more. Jesus forgives the woman, and then he challenges, or challenges her not to sin anymore. So if we want to live the kingdom life, we have to experience God's grace. We have to know how he views us. So what I want to do tonight is dig deeper into this idea of God's grace and look at a few ways that God shows us grace and a few ways that God's grace empowers us to live holy. And the Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 8, so I'm going to rely on that chapter just a little bit tonight for our points. So I'm going to take Romans 8 and John 8, and that's where we're going to head tonight. So the first thing is this. The first way that God's grace transforms us is this. God empowers us to live like Jesus by taking away our fear of punishment. So in our story, the woman cheats on her husband, and the holy God does not make her pay the penalty for her sin. She breaks the law, and then God does not make her pay. So how is this possible? How does 
Jesus just do away with that punishment? Is he saying that the law doesn't matter? Is Jesus saying that the Old Testament, oh, like that doesn't really matter? Have you ever had that, like a pastor, like uh, you go and ask them about the Old Testament, and they say, oh, you know, just don't worry about it. That's a lame answer. I was going to say that. I love your pastors, but, but the Old Testament is there for a reason, and Jesus does not declare it void. In Matthew 5, 17, it says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus did not come to abolish the law. He didn't say the Old Testament just doesn't matter anymore. Instead, he says, I've come to be the fulfillment of it. I've come to fulfill this law. So in the Old Testament, God gave his people laws because these laws were a guide for how to love God with their whole heart, how to love others, and how to flourish as an individual and as a community. And Jesus sums up the law in Matthew chapter 22. He says this, he says, And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, this is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus sums up the law by commanding us to love God and people because all the other commandments flow out of that. Like if you're loving God perfectly, and you're loving people perfectly, then you're going to obey the law perfectly. Now none of us can do that, right? Like we've all fallen short, we've all sinned. Like none of us can love God and people perfectly because people cut us off in traffic, and that's an excuse to not love people for some of us. Uh, So the law is a good thing, and God did not make a mistake when he wrote it. So the problem is not with the law, but the problem is with us. Because we're fallen human beings, we cannot obey the law no matter how hard we try. Like sometimes some of you come here to Chi Alpha or come to church, and you're like, I'm going to do better this week. And then you get like two days down the road, and you're doing the same sin you weren't going to do. That was my story, and that's still my story sometimes. I'm like, oh, I'm going to beat this. And I try to do it on my own, and I fall back into it. For some reason, the human heart just can't seem to obey God. I think about toddlers. Toddlers are the most selfish people in the world. Like we're born selfish. We're born sinful. Think about when your mom told you to clean your room. You're like, like some of you are like, okay, yes, mother. But most of us were like, I ain't cleaning my room now. She asked me to do it. I was planning on it, but now I'm not going to because she asked me to do it. <laughs> There's something in the human heart that does not want to obey rules. So if we just have a list of rules, if we just have a list of rituals or laws, but if we but at the same time don't have a relationship with God, then we're going to have a really tough time obeying him. If we're obeying simply so we won't get punished, then it's going to be very difficult to live the Christian life. So this was the problem in the Old Testament. This is why the law didn't work. Because the law does not produce righteousness. Instead, it produces sin. It actually causes people to sin because uh, when they're told to do something without having a changed heart, then they can't do it. So with that in mind, okay, so since we've all disobeyed this law, we must pay the penalty, right? These people were right. When the religious leaders said, hey, she should be sown, they're actually technically right. So it's not like they're crazy. Now they're trying to trick Jesus, which is lame, but they're not crazy. Like the law says, if you commit adultery, then you should be stoned. So how does Jesus get this woman off the hook? Well, the way he does it is he pays for her sin himself. Because he loves her so much, Jesus pays for her sin on the cross. He stands in our place, every single one of us' place, and pays our penalty. So instead of the woman taking the stones for her adultery, Jesus would take the stones just a few months later on the cross. He would bear those stones on the cross as he's being beaten and bruised and killed. And that's him getting this woman off the hook, right? The, the reason that Jesus was able to forgive her was because he knew he would go to the cross and pay for those sins later. That's how we get forgiveness. Or forgiveness. That's why we don't have to pay the penalties in the law. 
anymore. So when talking about how we, or how we live a life free of sin in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul starts by reflecting on this truth because he knew that the most foundational truth to living a holy life is knowing that there's no condemnation. Okay, so Romans 8.1 says this. It says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So Paul believed if we're going to live a holy life, then we need to get this in our bones. We need to get it in our bones that the backpack is over there, as Jacob said, and we did not plan that. I'm just saying, that was weird. Thank you for listening to God. But anyways, the backpack's over here. There's no condemnation. You don't have to carry that anymore. It's literally gone. It says later in Romans 8, it says, who can bring a charge against God's people? Because Jesus has paid the penalty. Satan cannot accuse you any longer. Satan cannot accuse you for your sin because Jesus has already marked it paid. And that needs to change us. That's what causes us to live holy. So does anyone in here have pets? Yes, some of us. You probably don't get to have a pet in the dorm, which is really sad. I have two cats. I love my cats. Let's throw up a picture. There's Franklin. He's a good kitty. As Franklin's owner, and we'll show Oliver's picture too. Look at little Ollie. As these, look at those portraits right there. Okay. (laughs) As Franklin and Oliver's owner, or as I like to say, their dad, which might be weird, but that's what I say. Anyways, I want them to want to be around me. It really hurts my feelings when they want to go sit under the couch. Like Oliver loves to just like army crawl under the couch. I'm like, bro, what are you doing down there? Come on out. But the way to get them to be around me is not by beating them or threatening, or threatening them with punishment. That's not a very good motivator for cats to want to come and cuddle on your lap, right? But a good way to get them to want to cuddle on your lap is to love them. Every time I see them, I swear, I love cats. Every time I see them, I'm talking sweet to them. Oh, Franklin, you're so cute. Oh, Oliver, I love you so much. You're such a good kitty. He starts to purr. purr. I'm like, come on. He sits on the lap. I talk sweet to them. I pet them because I know that my love will compel them to want to hang out with me. And this is what God wants with us. When I wake up in the morning, like literally Frank is like going between the legs. He's rubbing all on my legs. It's very annoying when you're trying to walk around and get ready. But this is what God wants for us. He wants us to want to be with him. And the way he does that is he takes away the fear of punishment. It says in 1 John that there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. God wants to remove the fear. So if you fear God in an unhealthy way, now there's a healthy way to fear God in the sense that you're like, wow, he's huge. He's awesome. I can't believe I get to stand in his presence. Wow. That's a good kind of fear. But the kind of fear where you're scared that he's going to smite you, that is not a good kind of fear. That's going to cause you to go back to your sin. So God wants God wants each of us to know tonight that if you're in Christ, if you put your faith in Jesus, there's no condemnation And the lack of fear or the removal of fear should be the first step to living a holy life. Because you're not obeying to try to do some rituals or to obey some rules, but instead you're obeying out of love. And love is a way better driver for holiness than fear. All right. So the second thing. So it starts with realizing this, but, but Jesus doesn't just say, okay, realize that you're loved and now obey me perfectly. Instead, he gives us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, all right? So the second point tonight is this. God empowers us to live like Jesus by giving us the Holy Spirit. Okay, get this. Okay, this is crazy. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The triune God, three persons, one essence. I'm not going to explain it today. Ask your religion professor. But God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, experiencing profound intimacy and community for all of eternity. They're completely holy. And then when Jesus ascends into heaven, he says, wait until I give you my Holy Spirit. Don't go out from here until you have my Holy Spirit. 
And then Jesus sends his Holy Spirit to live inside of every single Christian. So if you're a Christian, if you put your faith in Christ last week, the Holy Spirit came to take up residence inside your heart. So if the living God is living inside of you, that should cause you to live like him, right? The Holy Spirit empowers us to live like God. So Romans 8 9, Paul talks about this as he's talking about how to get free from sin. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. In fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So the Spirit lives inside of every single Christian. He says, if you're in Christ, you'll have the Spirit of Christ inside of you. So before you put your faith in Jesus, or if you haven't yet, this is what the Bible says is the state of your heart. It says that your heart is a heart of stone. It says that you cannot obey God because, because your heart has not been brought to life. Okay, Christianity is not about making bad people good, but actually making dead people come to life. Okay, so in Ezekiel, it says this in chapter 36, that, or this is actually a prophecy, like hundreds of years before Jesus comes to earth. And Ezekiel prophesies this. He says this, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you, and I, will, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So the Holy Spirit gives us a new heart. He gives you new desires. There, for some reason, when you put your faith in Christ, you start to have a little bit different desires. Because the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. He's brought in uh, your heart to life. But the Holy Spirit also helps us to obey by giving us the gift of conviction. Okay? There's other things he does. I don't have time to go into them. But uh, I think the most prominent thing is he gives us the gift of conviction. So John 16, 7 through 8 says, says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. This is Jesus talking about. He's telling his disciples, it's actually better if I leave because the Holy Spirit's going to come. For if I do not leave, the helper will not come to you. The helper is just a word for the Holy Spirit. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and, and righteousness and judgment. So conviction is a good thing. It's different from condemnation. Okay, so condemnation is when you feel intense guilt for your sin and you fear that God is going to punish you. He's really ticked off at you and he's going to punish you. There's no way out. You're never going to get out of this sin. You are doomed. That's condemnation. Conviction, on the other hand, is when you feel the loving guidance of the Holy Spirit exposing the sin in your life and he's compelling you to get it off your chest, to confess it to a friend or to confess it to God. It's like the Holy Spirit's up on a mountain saying, just come up higher, come up higher. It feels way better up here. It's not this intense guilt crushing you, but instead it's lifting you up. Conviction lifts you up from where you're at and brings you to a new plane. That's what God wants to do through the Holy Spirit. He wants to bring conviction when you're not pleasing him. Like if you're watching a show that's kind of dirty, like there should be conviction that comes in your heart. Like as a follower of Jesus, I probably should not be watching this. That happens to me sometimes. I'll start a new show. I'm like, this is going to be incredible. I start watching it. And I'm like, oh, Holy Spirit, can you go away right now? I just want to watch the show. But you feel conviction. I have to turn it off. That's one of the ways that God helps us to get free from sin. He starts to give us conviction. Before you even commit the sin, he starts to speak to your heart and says, hey, I don't want that for you. I have something better for you. But there's one more uh, way that God shows us grace and helps us to overcome sin. There's one more way that I want to touch on tonight. There's probably like a dozen ways or more, but I'm just going to touch on three. So the third thing is this. God empowers us to live like Jesus by giving us a new identity as sons and daughters of God. So in our text tonight from John 8, Jesus gives the woman his approval. He gives her his approval. He says, I don't condemn you. And then after giving his approval, so before she's ever done anything, before she's gone out and not sinned anymore, he gives her approval and then calls her to go and, or to go and sin no more. Jesus believed 
that if this woman could understand his view of her, which is dearly loved, which is uh, my beloved, the one who has no condemnation, the one who cannot have a charge brought against her as a daughter, he thought that if she could get that, then that would enable her to walk away from adultery. Jesus wanted her to get the good news. That's the good news. That's the gospel. You know, the gospel is this word for good news. So the good news is not, if you put this up on the screen, it's not that if you obey, then you're going to be loved after you obey. That's not the good news. That's not Christianity. That's something else. That's a different religion. Christianity says that the good news is this, that you are deeply loved and forgiven despite anything that you've done, uh, despite any bad thing you've done. And now out of that, go and obey God because you are deeply loved and obey God out of gratitude. That's the good news. So the chief way that Satan enslaves us in our sin is by making us think that our behavior determines God's, or God's view of us or changes our identity in Christ. He wants you to believe the lie that God only loves you when you're behaving well. He only loves you when you're being a good girl or a good boy. Because he knows that if he can get you to believe this, then you'll run from God and not to him. And the only way to get free from sin is to run to God even when you're struggling. The only way to get free is to fall deeply in love with God and to run towards him even in the midst of the struggle. Because if he's mad at you, if you think he's mad at you, then your natural instinct is going to be to hide from that person. Because like, who in here wants to be around someone who's mad at us, right? Satan wants to trap you in the sin cycle. Okay, what's the sin cycle? Put it up on the screen. So for many of us, this is what our struggle with sin looks like. Like you do a sinful action, then you feel shame you hide from God. You think, if I wait for three days, then I can talk to him again. Like you enter into some probationary period, like I have not uh, lived up to God's expectations of me, so I'm going to hide for a few days. And then you cope uh, with more sin because you're feeling that shame. You're hiding from God. You actually go back to the sin. And then Satan gives you a false identity. It's not the identity of son or daughter of God, but instead, let's use an example. Like you look at porn, okay? So that's a struggle for many people in this room. It's a struggle for many people and you feel shame. You hide from God. You don't bring it to him, but you hide and say, I need to figure this out. But then you probably go back to more porn because that makes you feel better for at least a second. And then Satan tells you, you are a porn addict and you're never going to get out of this. And then you get trapped in this cycle of sin. And tonight, Jesus wants to free us from that by giving us a new identity. And this is precisely why the Apostle Paul stresses our new identity in Christ in Romans chapter 8. So in verses 15 through 17, he says this. He says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Sons and daughters of God, you are not a slave to sin. He says, You did not receive the spirit of slavery, but instead you received the spirit of adoption. You've been adopted. You've been called sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father, which just means Daddy. Okay, that's the kind of relationship you're supposed to have with God. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. This is why I call this series Kings and Queens, because like we're co-heirs with Christ. So Jesus is the king, right? He's going to inherit eternal life. He's going to be with God for eternity. And we get to sit on the same plane, so to speak. That sounds kind of weird. It sounds kind of sacrilegious, but that's what it's saying. Co-heirs with Christ. We get to be with Christ and experience eternal life and eternity with God. So God is training you to reign for eternity alongside him. That is crazy. That's your identity. That's who God views you as. He does not view you as a porn addict. He does not view you as someone who keeps struggling, but instead he views you as his future kings and queens who are going to reign alongside him. That's got to change you tonight. And when you know that, when that's inside your bones, that gets you out of the sin cycle. 
Because this is what happens. This is the grace cycle. Sinful action. And then you say, okay, I screwed up. I feel conviction. You bring it to God. And then you feel grace. You hear Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, say, neither do I condemn you. Okay, so you experience that grace. And then you're reminded of your identity, your son or daughter of God. And then you get to move forward. You say, that does not set me back. I get to keep moving forward. You have new actions, forward movement. You uh, begin to make progress. You may not be perfect after that, but you can make progress. You can pick up where you left off instead of feeling like you need to start over again, which is how we feel when we go through the sin cycle. So when we realize our identity as sons and daughters of God, it enables us to get traction against our sin because we know that God has not changed his mind and that God calls us his sons and his daughters. So Hebrews 4, verse 16 says, says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. So when we know that God calls us his kids no matter what, then we can run to him even even right after we messed up. And this enables God to keep working on our hearts because we're putting our heart in his hand and letting him continue to work on it. So a good way to think about this is when a child begins to walk or a baby begins to walk. Uh, so think about this. Okay, picture a good dad. Maybe you had a poor dad, but picture a good dad. Okay, and a baby begins to take a few steps and the baby falls over. Does a good dad go and say, bad girl, you only took two steps. Spanking, you're going to your room. No, we know that's silly, right? Instead, a good dad says, wow, that's amazing. You took two steps today. And that's how God views our fight with sin. When we grow, he says, wow, you're growing. You're becoming more like me. And he picks us up and says, try again. That's what God wants to invite us into tonight. He wants to invite us into the grace cycle. He wants us to know that he's not waiting for us to screw up, but he is cheering us on. He's supporting us. He wants to be with us in our down times and our up times. He wants to celebrate with us. He wants to cry with us. Yes, God corrects us. He convicts us when we sin, but just or just as a parent disciplines their child, but then he lovingly shows us the way forward, and he never leaves our side. So that's what God's calling you into tonight. So last week, I shared my faith story, and if you missed it, we post our sermons online. You can check it out. It's at the beginning. But for me, one of the things that was really foundational in my faith story was my struggle with pornography and how God freed me from it. So from the age of 12 to 18, I was trapped in a pornography addiction, This addiction entangled me, and it really put a strain on my relationship with God because I always thought that he changed his mind about me when I slipped up. So maybe there's something in your life tonight, and you can resonate with me. Like There's something that you just feel like you keep going back to, and God keeps changing his mind. But then right before I got to college, I had an experience with God's grace, and I realized how much he loved me. And as that happened, the partying, the drinking, the smoking, that stuff fell away, but pornography kind of still just held on for a few weeks or a few months. And... uh, and my pastor at Chi Alpha, because I came to Chi Alpha as a freshman, tried to get me to go to fall retreat, okay? And I thought fall retreat was like, I don't know, backpacking through the woods. I'm not that kind of guy, okay? I just don't, like, I like to sit inside, to be honest. But anyways, I thought it was like, we're going to go play games, and we're gonna, it's going to be goofy. It's going to be like summer camp. Some of you love summer camp, but uh, I didn't. But anyways, I thought that's what it's going to be like. But he called my mother and said, hey, will you pay for Daniel to go? And if you want me, I to do that, I'll do that for you. But anyways, he did that, so I kind of had to go to fall retreat. And I go the first night, there's like 20 people there at the time. There's like 100 and some now, but there's about 20 people. And, uh, and the pastor preaches the sermon on, on taking responsibility for your faith. He, 
And he preached with this extreme conviction from the Holy Spirit. Just like the, the presence of God was in the room. It wasn't condemnation, but it was conviction. And I came up to the altar that night, and I just gave pornography up. I said, God, I need freedom from, from this. I confessed it to a friend. He prayed for me. Actually, we bawled together because we both struggled with it. And God just set me free that night. But then the next night, I talked about the Holy Spirit a little bit. The next night, God baptized me in the Holy Spirit. And maybe you don't know what that is, but just this experience where God kind of empties the junk out of your life and fills you with his Holy Spirit in a deeper way. It's kind of the second experience that happens after salvation. And these two nights combine, kind of like this, this, this powerful combustion of, of a night of experiencing God's grace and experiencing God's power. These two nights helped set me free from pornography. And I never went back to my old ways after that. Before that, I looked at it every day, but now I knew that I was a child of God. I was filled with the Holy Spirit. I was called to be his son or daughter. God was training me to reign with him, and I began to, to truly get free. And that doesn't mean I was perfect after that, but, but the chains were broken off my life, and I began to walk in this purity. Satan lied to me for six years, and he told me that I could never get free from this. I thought it'd be a part of my life forever. But all it took was one weekend of encountering God's love and his power, and it changed the game for me. And I'm praying that you would have that experience tonight. We don't have to wait till fall retreat, although you should come. I'm telling you guys, it's amazing. Like, I'll pay you back if you think it stinks, okay, from my own account. It's amazing. But tonight, I believe we can experience that grace. Tonight, I believe that God can empower you to live like Jesus by showing you extravagant grace. And that's the main idea tonight. Again, God empowers us to live like Jesus by showing us extravagant grace. Every one of you came in here tonight and you're at a different place. You're all at different places. Some of you have never made Jesus the Lord of your life. You never experienced what it's like, like what Jacob talked about, to experience what it's like to have Jesus' blood cover all your sins and for God to look at you and say, you're spotless, you're white as snow, and you're forgiven, you're set free. You've never experienced that. And tonight, I pray that you would make the decision to follow Jesus. I pray, that you, I pray that you would accept the sacrifice that Christ gave for you on the cross when he bore your penalty, when he stood in the way of the stones for you. I pray tonight that you would put your faith in Jesus. Romans 10 says all you have to do is confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. I pray that you would step into that tonight if you haven't. God's inviting you into a greater story. He's inviting you into something far greater than you could ever ask or imagine. It's going to get hard at times, but he's inviting you into life and relationship with him. So if you do not have a relationship with Christ, tonight I pray that you'd make that decision. But then there's others of us here tonight, and you're a follower of Christ. You're a Christian, but you've allowed some sin in that has separated you from God. And maybe you've never told anyone about these sins. And maybe you're afraid to tell God because you think he doesn't already know, which is goofy, because he's God. But you think, like, if you tell him, he's going to change his mind about you, or you're going to have to deal with things that you don't want to deal with. Or maybe there's no big sins in your life, but if you're honest, if you're really, really honest with yourself, you're not really in love with Jesus right now. For whatever reason, maybe you're not reading your Bible, maybe you're not in community, I don't know, but for whatever reason, you may be a follower of Christ positionally, like a son or daughter, like God looks at you and says you're son or daughter, but you do not love Jesus. And tonight I pray that you would experience the radical grace of God that, or that that woman experienced in John chapter 8 and that that would compel you to run from sin and to run towards God. I pray that you get so caught up in God's love for you, so caught up in loving him that it just kind of like the sins, like you don't have to focus on them, like they just start to fall off your life. Like change just start to get broken because you are so passionately, deeply 
in love with Jesus. You just want to be around dad all the time. Just like my cats want to be around me, right? You just want to be around God. You want to spend time with him. You want to pray. You want to read your Bible. You want to be a small group. And all of a sudden, all these sins start to to get off your life. It's not because you try harder. It's not because you pull up your bootstraps, but it's because you experience the love and grace of Jesus Christ, and that transforms you. So I'm inviting you into that tonight. The Holy Spirit is inviting you into that. So if you would stand with me, we're going to close. So God wants us to realize how he views us tonight. And he wants us to have a proper view of him. He's not waiting to smite you or to condemn you, but instead, he's the best dad on the planet. And he's inviting you into a relationship. Maybe you don't have a good father on earth. And maybe you've never experienced what it's like to have a good father. And tonight, God wants to be your father. He wants to be the best dad that you could ever have. God wants to be your father. He wants to invite you into that. And he wants you to experience what it's like to be a son or daughter. So if you'd bow your heads and close your eyes, I'm going to give two ways to respond. And the first way is this. If you came in here tonight and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not a Christian or you haven't been, or maybe you once were, but you've walked away from it and you haven't really been living life with Christ, and you want to put your faith in Jesus and experience what it means to be a son or daughter of God, I want to give you opportunities. So I'm going to count to three. And when I do, I just want you to slip up your hand, not because like you need to show anybody else, but just because I think that's a signal of faith saying, God, we confess with our mouth that you're Lord and we believe in our hearts that you've been raised from the dead. So uh, one, two, three. Just slip up your hands all across this room. I see that hand. 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 Is there anybody else? There's a lot of people raising their hand. I see that hand. All right. So I want to pray for you. There's no, uh, there's no magical formula. Like I'm just going to pray a simple prayer of repentance and a simple prayer of putting our faith in Christ. And just pray it in your heart as I pray out loud. God, tonight we just confess that uh, we've fallen short. God, we've fallen short and we can't do life on our own. We can't do this life on our own. And tonight we want to invite you to be the Lord of our lives. We confess with our mouths that you're Lord and we believe in our hearts that you've been raised from the dead. So Jesus, be our King. Be our Lord tonight. Transform us. Call us son or daughter. In Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, there's one more group, so keep your heads bowed. And this is for people who follow Jesus. If you're here tonight and you follow Jesus, but if you're honest, there's either some sins that you've been hiding that are separating you from God, or you just have not been in love with Jesus lately, and you need a download of his love tonight, and you need to be reminded of the way that he views you, that he calls you son, that he calls you daughter. If you just want a download of his love tonight, can you just lift up your hand to heaven right now? Get tons of hands going up. Jesus, we pray that, Kyle, that this group of people here, that these students in this room uh, would know the way that you view them, that you call them son, that you call them daughter, that you say that you're well pleased with them, that you say that there's no one who could bring a charge against them because you've already paid for their sins in full. So God, I pray that you would call us into this relationship tonight, this deep intimacy with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.